Welcome to the Holy Sparks Podcast. Our mission is to illuminate the brightest lights in the Jewish world and beyond so that we elevate the Holy Sparks within us and make the world around us a better place. I'm your host, Saul Kay. If you're looking for inspiration, edutainment, or simply want to discover people doing amazing things in and around the Jewish world, you're in the right place. Also want to give a big thank you to our sponsor, JLTV, Jewish Life Television Network. JLTV is a 24-7 cable and satellite television network delivering news, history, and entertainment. JLTV brings together the greatest voices from around the country, across the world, and from the Holy Land. Go to jltv.tv for stories that inspire. Okay, welcome to the Holy Sparks podcast. I got an amazing guest for you and a good friend of mine. And without further ado, let me edify the woman properly. Rabbi Lori Matzkin has led and designed Jewish educational experiences for all ages and settings, such as religious schools, B'nai Mitzvah programs, summer camps, women's and family retreats, adult education seminars, Israel trips, and conversion programs. She studied flute since the third grade or since she was three years old, we'll find out, and Jewish studies at Indiana University, Bloomington, and received rabbinic ordination and a master's degree in experiential education and a certificate in nonprofit management for rabbis, all from AJU Ziegler School in LA. Rabbi Maskin served as the director of lifelong learning at Congregation Kol MF in Palo Alto for seven years, the family educator for PJ Library in Silicon Valley, and the mindful Jewish journeys educator for the Los Gatos JCC spanning six years. Also, she served as the rabbi for the Villages Jewish Group in San Jose for almost five years. In 2022, Rabbi Matzkin became the Chief Jewish Experience Officer at the Peninsula JCC in Foster City, California. So ladies and gentlemen, would you please put your hands together for my good friend, Rabbi Lori Matzkin. Rabbi Lori, how are you? I'm so great. I'm so happy to see you. I know we're only a few miles apart right now, but um, somehow it's comforting in 2023 to actually see friends on Zoom. Isn't that funny? It is. Well, you know, it's as long as we have that good feel, this is what we want to convey to the people this afternoon. So tell people about your background growing up. Jewishly. Oh, I would be thrilled to. So um, I'm fifth generation San Francisco Bay Area Jewish. Uh, on my mom's side, my dad's side came to the uh, West Coast from Chicago when he was starting college. So I grew up at Temple Isaiah uh, in in Lafayette in the East Bay. Um, I remember some really early memories of climbing up on our washing machine, reaching way high up to the top shelf. I don't know why they were up there, but the Shabbat candles were way up on the top shelf, reaching them down and bringing them in, uh, into the kitchen to light candles on Friday nights. We would do the blessings and uh, have dinner, and then we would move the candles into the porcelain sink, into the kitchen sink so that we could drive down the freeway from Danville and make it to services at Temple Isaiah. Um, I I really did not know that I wasn't Shomer Shabbos uh, until I'd say I applied for rabbinical school when I was sort of made aware of uh, a more technically halachic observant Shabbat reality, uh, which I tried on and also enjoyed. I have played the flute since second, third grade. My father has played many instruments in his life. And um, for his 40th birthday, instead of the old gag gifts when 40 used to be over the hill, people used to give like silly gifts to the uh, celebrant. Well, instead of that, my mom had uh, their friends pitch in a little bit of money to get the flute, which he hadn't played since I think college or so, cleaned up and buy him three months of flute lessons. So I was in second grade and there began to be music in the house. And um, by third grade, we were sharing a flute teacher. We were in several recitals together, Carla Angle out in Danville. And uh, there's a beautiful Talmudic uh, story that ends with the line, God saying, my children have defeated me, right? Judaism has evolved beyond what I ever expected. And so I think that was my my dad's experience of sort of graduating into the armchair and listening to me practice flute. 
I, I bring this up because music and Judaism have always been intertwined for me. Uh, I played From a Distance by Bette Midler for the silent Amidah of my bat mitzvah um, at Temple Isaiah. Not so silent, but a great song. You know, that that beautiful Amidah line, God is watching us, right? Um, and so I remember playing Matovu at the beginning of our confirmation service. We had so many uh, instrumentalists in our little peer group, but we were all confirmed together. I brought my flute to Israel. I remember playing Eli Eli and the last butterfly at the entrance to Yad Vashem. On and on, I can just give you so many musical memories. Eventually, uh, you, we were probably both in Berkeley at this time when uh, Shefa Gold, started doing some Shavuot retreats and I started being open to the world of chanting and meditation. I think right before I left for college, having some all night Shavuot, you know, amazing renewal mystical experiences. By the time I got to Indiana University um, and I uh, loved the Jewish life so much in Bloomington that after my audition for the music school, I said to my mom on the plane back, I'll just go there. Whether or not I get into the music school, it was just such a wonderful Hillel Jewish Studies program. I was honored with several scholarships in the Jewish Studies program. But really, those two those two paths became richer and more, let's say, intellectually rigorous, um, but still interweaving. Um, I studied in Vienna for a semester in fall of 1999, um, and was sort of my head was in 1830 to 1910 Vienna, Beethoven, Mozart, Finn de Vienna, you know, all of these amazing composers and musical moments during the week. And then I would go to Jewish communities around Europe on the weekends and visit, you know, concentration camps and some more living Jewish communities. I remember, you know, Yom Kippur in uh, a synagogue in Paris and Hanukkah in the Alt Neue Schule in Prague, looking behind the thick brick walls where the women had to peer through to see what was going on. And so really, in so many different ways, I've always brought these paths together. Um, and so we'll we'll catch up with the, the, the current moment, but that's a little of my origin. Amazing. And I have friends of mine that went to Indiana U um, in the jazz program, which is legendary, and they were all amazing players. I'm thinking my buddy Mitch Marcus, also Jewish, and another the other guy was Jewish as well. So interesting tie in there. But did you ever consider a in music as a path for yourself? I I did. Oh. I definitely did. And I was a, a student of David Baker, who was the uh, leader of that incredible jazz program. And I can still remember a couple of the warm-up licks. I could probably sing it, but I'll spare you all. Um, yeah, you know, I I definitely entered as a Bachelor of Music student. What's so cool about Indiana is that it's a full music school. The music school is the size of my high school, 1700, um, within a Big Ten university of over 40,000 students. Um, and and really one of the top two Jewish studies programs in the country as well. Very strong Hillel. All of the, you know, great Big Ten energy that brings vibrant Jewish students from across the country, the tri-state area, the Chicago area, on and on. I remember we hosted the GA um, uh, conference in Indianapolis one year, and I say we as if it were me, but we had like a bus or two of Jewish students go to the GA. Debbie Freeman performed that night, and, you know, it was my first of many, many Jewish conferences. I would say my soul is in the Jewish jam band, um, liturgical jam space. I was remembering an early cage conference at Hofstra way out on Long Island, where I worked with Sam Glazer and Donnie Mossang. And then, you know, I came back, um, I think that was before maybe my senior year. And I remember we had a boom box, a huge boom box in my apartment, my off-campus apartment. <laughs> I, lis I listened to uh, Donnie Mossang's Soul on Fire, like, blasting in the apartment, just like taking it all in. And so that's always been where my spirit resides. Of course, there were people who said, well, you're a classical flutist and, you know, you love this Jewish stuff. I was leading services at Hilla. Why don't you be a cantor? And I, you know, we've sung together, Saul. So, you know, I, I can carry a tune, but I'm certainly no opera singer. It's not my main instrument. Um, so I had to sort of work with this energy of the the either or and say, no, no, it's both and. And so really, again, since my bat mitzvah until last Shabbos with you at Beth Jacob, right? Like I, I lead through my flute um, and I 
appreciate how the flute can be a voice um, and encourage singing and encourage more human voices to rise up and feel confident and comfortable during prayer services. Um, really, you know, having that melody be available and clear and also, you know, noodling around so that we can have a range of expression as well. So I did all my classical performances. I've done all my concerts. I did a recital at a former congregant and friend, Len, Len uh, and Vivian Lehman's house in Portola Valley here. They have a beautiful winery. And um, with my aunt who played from a distance with me, my aunt, uh, Lisa Spector, who's an incredible musician and pianist and entrepreneur. Another very close friend, Hannah Druckmann, who's leading Hazamir here and also um, a choir at Hausner on viola, violin, and voice. And believe it or not, my acupuncturist at the time played Celtic harp or Celtic harp. And we rounded out a gorgeous hour of repertoire from Debussy to Karl Bach-Nigunim in different arrangements. And that was probably 10 years, maybe 15 years ago, I don't know. And that really felt like this apex of saying, I can do it, I can do a concert, and now I'm ready to just do it in informal relational ways. I love it. Well, it's funny, your comment that the flute encourages people to rise up, it reminds me of this famous story about, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with this story, and Yom Kippur, everyone's praying, and the prayers don't happen, and this kid that comes in and doesn't know the Siddur, and he comes in, he blasts one note on the flute, and like, whoosh, takes all the prayers of Shemayim. So I love this concept of, you know, you said the, the flute encourages people to rise up, and I think you're contrasting it with the maybe intimidation of hearing someone that is this, you know, sort of operatically trained Hazan, you know, that may not necessarily discourage people from singing, but has a different effect. So talk more about that, because that's a really important point. Unless I just said it all, in which case we're moving no, on. No, no, you said some of it, but I can keep going. I mean, I was so blessed to grow up at Temple Isaiah. Shout out to Isaiah in the 80s and 90s. Um, Rabbi Gretz, Rabbi Shanks, Joel Siegel um, was a huge musical influence. He's still around Berkeley. And we have always had a really strong cantorial tradition there. Um, but I would say it was innovative in the sense of, these are real musicians with other instruments as well, who were on that cutting edge of bringing the reform movement back into, let's say, maybe liturgical context. So we were doing Hebrew chatimot way decades before I heard it anywhere else. A chatima is the last line of a Hebrew prayer. So you might have a beautiful um, poetic English reading that the congregation is reading, but the cantor then would go back and say, and to do that in that reform setting in, let's say, in the 90s, actually was, was revolutionary to make that connection. And on the other side, I did have to take guitar, piano, and classical voice at IU, and I studied voice with people who ended up in the Metropolitan Opera. So I had to learn, you know, right I all this Italian I, I don't remember it and so this idea of using your voice to connect to um, portray emotions to bring us to a spiritual level you know I'm also very much a um, in the lineage of Shlomo Karlbach's music, which really blends this idea of being a folk singer using your normal speaking voice um, and channeling melodies that are uh, almost nonverbal, that are um, simple, that are relatable, that are catchy, that become like a mantra. And uh, we can, I don't know if you've said on your podcast yet, the idea of me Sinai, music me Sinai, where it seems like it's just been around forever. It must be the traditional way. It must have been from, if not temple times, then, you know, at least shtetl times. Most of that music was actually composed, but in the 50s to 70s, right? Uh, a classic example is Rabbi Moshe Rothblum from Los Angeles, who composed at Camp Ramon, Ojai. And this is one of those melodies that just makes it across every genre. And people have no idea how new, right? It's less than a 50-year-old melody. Same with Karl Bach. We just we forget where it comes from. I've recently heard that Debbie Friedman's Havdala is actually sung at uh, NCSY 
um, modern Orthodox youth groups, they don't know that it's a, a female, you know, cutting edge pioneer in the reform movement. So there are some of these melodies that that cross all over the place. And um, certainly someone with a beautiful trained voice can lead us. Um, but I also think like we have, I have an egalitarian approach to prayer and tefillah, and we can all lead and we can lead well if we're coming from passion, a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of practice and kind of a, a framework of what we're doing. I'll just give one more shout out, which is to the Stiebel Minion in Los Angeles, where I davened um, many Shabbats during rabbinical school. And, and, you know, that was very much this culture of DIY, you know, plenty of, uh, rabbis and faculty and, you know, high level uh, committed Jews and academics leading services, but not in a um, vocally refined way, really passionate, some of the highest spirit, but, um, you know, we can all do it. I love it. Okay. So that community, because you said it kind of quickly, was the Stiebel community in LA? Where, is that the Stiebel Minion. Oh, Stiebel Minion. Minion. Cool. Mm-hmm. Does it still exist? It does still exist. Where? Where does it exist? Like it in- is. Uh, it was in the Workman's Circle building. I believe they're still there, which is um, on Robertson, just about a block and a half south of Pico. Um, it was a art gallery for Workman's Circle, which is a very like secular, almost humanist, like talk about DIY. Take your Judaism in your own hands and focus on social action, um, I'd say, over the last century. So sometimes we're doing these like neo-Hasidic you know, melodies, and there'd be like the craziest art on the wall um, that would be kind of coming from this totally different angle of Judaism. One other funny Stiebel story is that after over four years of of dominating there, mostly on Shabbat morning, um, a a friend of mine, a colleague, um, showed me, opened my eyes, that there was a yoga studio right next door, literally across an alley, which was Yoga West, which was the center of Kundalini Yoga. Um, and in fact, um, Yogi Bhajan, who was sort of one of the leaders of bringing that kind of movement and integration, breath and spiritual awareness to the States from India, was on the same circuit as Karlbach and as Reb Zalman. And um, there's an incredible poster, I'll show you, Saul, of Holy Man Jam, Timothy Leary, all sorts of crazy people in San Francisco, where Yogi Bhajan and Karl Bach were back to back on this concert poster. And so I just love that. I feel like that's what we're doing, this holy person jam. We're jamming. Let's let's just trade ideas and see if we can transcend our daily mucky experience and lift each other up and, and connect with something higher. I love it. Okay. You just transitioned into the next subject that I want to talk about, but I want to circle back for one second and ask you a question. You talked about this concept of what I call a sort of music from Ama Arts, like music of the people, right? So we're all essentially folk singers. People can sing in their natural voice and it makes them more comfortable and connected. And so question to you, and I ask this of all the sort of cantorally minded people is does operatic singing, what I call sort of high cantorial chazanut, does it have a place in 2023? Is it relevant? Yes or no? And why? I mean, there are so many modes of music. You know, even if you think of some of the greats, Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, you know, there's such a range of experience in our psyche, in our mind. Like, I don't know how many pounds our our brain wave weighs, but we have so many, you know, so many thoughts in our life and I feel like there's a place for all the musical manifestations of it. I want to honor that there are people who grew up still alive and in synagogue and in worship settings who grew up with that kind of high hazanut. And I think that they deserve some leadership and some opportunities to hook into their own nostalgia. Our kids growing up at Hausner and Wernick and the Jewish day school movement of the Bay Area they're going to hook into your music as nostalgia and it's going to be a different thing, but I think it's important to honor all the paths. Um, you know, the song by Sharona, which is this gorgeous um, soprano, very 
delicate um, melody, like that's what I walk down the aisle to for my wedding, right? So I don't want to say there's no place for a refined voice at all. I do think like there are moments when we need people to sing together and there are moments when we need to allow a receiving. You know, I think of the um, the way we hold the Kiddush cup on Shabbat, we're supposed to hold it from the bottom. And what I've you know, taught and and understood is that this is the symbol of not grasping so tightly, right? It's Chaim Hilamachazikim Ba. Sometimes we grasp the Torah, we strangle it so tight, and we have such a tight grasp on our own life experience, and we want that music to work for everyone. We're clapping in people's face. It's too much. So sometimes there's a a, a way that we need to receive music as an art form that can open our soul in a, in a different way. Um, I love going to the Met movies. There's this, there's this program of bringing um, a high quality movie cinematic experience from the Metropolitan Opera into theaters around the country. Palo Alto Square has had it for years. And the idea of having that close up camera on Renee Fleming versus sitting in the nosebleed seats like there is something intimate to it. And so I, you know, I have a degree in classical music. I, I want to uh, to give it space. I remember when I lived in Philadelphia, uh, when I worked for Hillel and the Kimmel Center on Broad Street opened right when I lived there. And I went to the opening night and it was Cecilia Bartoli. And I sat in the very top peanut gallery possible seat. Now the Kimmel Center is shaped like the inside of a string instrument. It's shaped like a cello. It's all wood. It's just unreal. I could hear her breathe that first note before she opened, you know, at the beginning of the concert before she sang. That was exactly 20 years ago, 21 years ago. And that breath is with me. So I want to honor and give space for um, how music has a resonance through people's life. And and that is, I think, where the place for Hasanud is. Cool. I love it. Okay. So I'm going to scroll back a little bit. So you talked about this connection between the Stiebel minion and this Kundalini West. And so was that kind of the, the dawn of Makom yoga or did that come later and talk to people about what that is and how it integrates with what you do? That is such a great question. Well, I'll start with Makom yoga and we can, we can unpack it. Um, so Makom in Hebrew means space or place. Um, it also is a name for God, a famous line early in the Torah um, that Jacob says when he wakes up from his uh, crazy visions of angels going up and down, his head is on a pillow, which is a rock. So he says, Mano Raha Makom Hazeh. Um, and how awe-inspiring is this place. And he really means this place. And he means this inner space that I just opened up to. And he also means God that I'm tapping into. So all of that is what I uh, want to offer people who do Makom Yoga with me. There is certainly a robust community of uh, Jewish-themed yoga teachers and practitioners now, and I am, you know, part of that lineage, um, and I started Makom Yoga, I want to say 2010, because it was the first year that I was invited at Kolomen Palo Alto with Rabbi Sarah Graf, um, who's my big sister rabbi, to be part of the women's retreat at Kolomen, and she actually said, can you do, like, something experiential, spiritual, different for the Sunday morning service. And that was the first time I taught an integrated yoga to fila, actually. And it really has grown from there. So I've been blessed to, you know, guide groups from uh, JCA Shalom Women's Retreat to synagogues all over the Bay Area. I remember I did a Hadassah women's event where we were looking at the midrash of Esther and Vashti and the difference between Esther having this crown of light and Vashti, there's a midrash that she has this tail. And so what does it mean to both be embodied and beyond your body at the same time? So for me, I love to start with a text. It could be a holiday, a Parsha, an idea, and then um, go on an exploration by looking for keywords that might have an embodied possibility to them. Um, and or a breath tradition or some other tradition. So for example, um, 
the the beautiful teaching that we were brought out of Sinai, uh, brought out of Egypt into Sinai on eagle's wings. Well, eagle pose is a favorite yoga pose, and there are so many commentaries about what that means in the Torah. Was God fluttering around? Was God carrying us on God's back because every bird except for the eagle carries its young underneath it? But then they're more vulnerable, right? So how do you feel that in your body when you set up for eagle's pose? So Sort of in my mind, like the most antithetical physical movement to you think of an eagle being like outstretched arms, you know, it's, it's talk about that. How do you weave that together? Because you, this, you know, there's not, there's no, there's no flight in that motion. So, so you're flying because you're balancing on one leg and you're finding your stability within that wind. And when you release, then you feel the whole wingspan. That's part of it. Um, the, and really it's, you know, we have this, uh, idea of the pardes of the different levels of interpretation. So I think you're hooking into when we think of, you know, the Google search images, Eagle, and we see it and we say, well, that doesn't feel like Eagle's pose, but let's unpack what did the Eagle mean in the Indian traditions? What does it mean in the Jewish traditions? What does it mean when you really think about the animal and how it, you know, how this bird is, right? What does it mean to be kind of the the top of the hierarchy of birds? How can you find that rooting? Yoga is all about rooting down and lifting up, right? The strength of the eagle while it's so gracefully flying. And then what does that mean for our Jewish relationship with God, maybe individually or nationally, to becoming out of this slave mentality for hundreds of years and all the grime and the guck? and somehow arrive at Mount Sinai ready to receive. And I do think there's a transporting that needed to happen. And, you know, I'm in Egypt mentality way more than I wish I was. And the more I actually would use the tools that I teach, I know that I could transcend and, you know, fly through the wind to Mount Sinai more often, but that's on me. That's not the fault of the tradition. That's about me, you know, implementing it more often. Okay, so we're gonna pause there. Okay, Egypt mentality. When I think of Egypt, I think of Mitzrayim, I think of constriction. I also think of obviously slavery and being enslaved to things and thoughts and you know little mind <laughs> mind traps, rabbit holes. What does it mean to you when you say Egyptian mentality? Yeah, exactly. All of that, a hundred percent. Yes, the idea of Sar. And actually, I give a shout out to uh, one of my colleagues and friends and teachers, Julie Emden who um, created Embodied Jewish Learning, and we created an Embodied Jewish Learning Teachers Network for the last several years. And uh, I went to one of Julie's classes years ago. I think it was the Feast of Jewish Learning at the Palo Alto JCC. And um, she brought the Sfada Met, which is now, you know, very popular teaching now, but this idea of Mitzar uh, Leyam, that Egypt, the word in Hebrew Mitzrayim has in it from narrowness, to the sea and this idea of um, the birth canal of the Jewish people. Literally, if you look at a map of the Nile, you can see that the Nile Delta is sort of like this birth canal. And, and it makes sense, the fertile crescent, right? The fertility of, of the uh, shores of the water. And yet we kind of have to invert it to get out of it and to get out of the busyness of doing the work of building these these buildings, these edifices, you know, some people think of them as pyramids, the, the garrison cities. I don't know. For me, I still feel like I get stuck a lot in the building of the daily tasks. Maybe it's because my kids are young. Maybe it's because I'm a perfectionist at work. Maybe it's it's because we are in a just always a busy time. But I like to keep reminding myself and the daily prayers encourage us, you know, to remember the contrast between Egypt, which is mochin de katnut, this small brain where you just are on the task in front of you, and mochin de gadlut, this sense of expansive biggerness, which is where the eagle can take you. So there's a whole world out there and a whole mindset out there besides Egypt. Um, I'm just being really vulnerable with you and our audience that, you know, we are all constantly, I think, and I'll speak for myself, just trying to remind ourselves of these tools to be in that bigger awareness. I love it. You know, I've been listening to um, 
this book by Rabbi, not Rabbi, by Jack Cornfield called After the Ecstasy, The Laundry, right? And it's so good. Uh, just a little shout out to everything he's written I love. But specifically, you know, he dispels this notion of these, you know, exalted spiritual masters of the East or West that have this just perfect idyllic life and all this, you know, which is we, uh, there was a, there was a, a rule in ancient China that your spiritual master had to live three valleys away from you. <laughs> because if you live very close to him, you'd see it's actually not perfect. And it would also require you to go on a long journey to go and meet with, you know, him or her and get the wisdom. And so, you know, we teach what we need to learn so much, right? And we, we offer what we want to grow and I have so much more to say about that. But anyway, point well taken. Amazing. Okay. So quick question. Maybe not a quick question, but you started very uh, rooted in the reform tradition growing up, and then you migrated into conservative, and that's where you got your smicha. So talk a little bit about that and maybe a little bit why, and let's understand that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely relate to the phrase spiritual seeker and that being outdoors and channeling through music and connecting with others through music. Um, and really all forms of creativity. I, uh, since we're doing so many shout outs, I would like to uh, lift up the artist's way uh, and Julia Cameron as a methodology that was really influential and helpful for me the last 20 years um, since I started rabbinical school. Um, and, you know, I was leading, as I said, re leading reform services at the IU Hillel, the Indiana Hillel in the you know beginning. I really didn't have a lot of exposure to other movements until um, late teenage and into college and after. Um, I remember having a good friend from middle school who went to the uh, conservative synagogue near us in Contra Costa. And like the main thing I remember was she went up maybe for an Aliyah or something. And she said, ugh, the cantor didn't brush his teeth on, on Yom Kippur. It's like the worst breath ever. Like that was what I knew. And uh, I knew there were a few more prayers at her bat mitzvah than I had been aware of. Um, and when I got to Hillel, you know, we were all in on these beautiful, like handcrafted reform services. And there was a whole nother service happening upstairs. Um, we would be in the front living room of the Hillel upstairs. There's like another 50, 100 people doing something else. Um, and so really like that was a conservative service. This is where I started to find out about day school. I didn't even know about Jewish day school. I had vaguely heard maybe of Tehia or OHD. These are day schools in the East Bay when I went on a communal teen Israel trip, but really barely. Like I said, I, I don't think I knew I wasn't Shomer Shabbos until <laughs> rabbinical, until I applied for rabbinical school the first time. So by the end of college, you know, I had gone to Vienna, as I said, and I sort of got to dip into a little bit of other stuff. When I came back from Vienna that summer, I did BCI, Brandeis Collegiate Institute, um, which was hugely formative and, you know, a place and a program, a makom, if you will, close to my heart that really nourished my soul. So uh, BCI is a program that started on the East Coast. Um, it was funded by Justice Louis Brandeis, who was a big proponent. He was on the Supreme Court, big proponent of helping Jews figure out how to be thriving Jews in America. And the pedagogy was created by Shlomo Bardeen, who was incredible, sort of Russian-Israeli educator who did all these like... Um, test communities and studied a uh, different intentional community all over the world. And so they together created this program for young adults age 18 to 26 to explore questions of being, are you an American Jew or a Jewish American? Um, and the way it evolved in LA, outside LA, is, um, in Simi Valley, is to really use the arts dance, theater, music, other modalities to really explore your Jewish soul. And so I was able to really have that be a musical experience, spent a lot of time with Donnie Mossang there as well. Um, and through that experience, it led me towards a less Hillel-focused Shabbat 
set up the following year, my senior year of college. And we had um, kind of a neo-Hasidic Karl Bachi group, um, people who had been at Hebrew University while I was in Vienna and who had experienced, you know, all that Jerusalem has to offer. So we're all coming together in apartments. And I remember um, a close friend of mine was like leading a lot of these Friday night services. I had never heard of Yadid Nefesh. I mean, I I didn't know what I didn't know. And I would sit next to her and like kind of apprentice with my friend in our college apartments until I learned like what I'd call a Friday night Karlbach service. Um, and, you know, it's just so much more Hebrew, so much denser of a prayer experience. Um, not that I didn't know how to put together a lovely reform service, but this is something totally else. The following year, then I started working for Hillel and supporting reform and conservative campus Shabbat experiences and student leaders. The following year, I actually went to uh, Lishma, which was a program in uh, Ramah, Ojai at 2002. It's amazing how long ago this is. And we were like a little kolel, a little study group, egalitarian study group with Reb Mimi Feigelson. Daniel Graber was the founder of it. Jonah Steinberg had come with all these great guests. Um, while Camp Ramah was happening around us, which is, of course, like the flagship conservative camp experience. And so that was another level of like living into what is a more halakhically minded, still very raucous and fun spiritual, you know, experience like. And uh, I went back for a second year working for Hillel and had a little crisis uh, around Sukkot of that second year as a JCSC fellow. And I sort of was like, what am I doing? Like I'm giving ice cream to freshmen and we're watching friends like this is dumb. But of course, I had done a million incredible engagement opportunities and programs. And over Sukkot, I sort of had a, like a dark week. And when I came out of it, I was with my friend, Rabbi Jill Borodin, who had at the time been at Har Zion in Philadelphia. She's now been in Seattle for many years. I think Beth Shalom is the name of the synagogue. And I was in her sukkah outside Philadelphia. And I remember looking up at the stars and saying, aha, rabbinical school. That's what it is. Okay. And I started the process of applying. And I actually did apply to JTS. I applied to the UJ, now AJU Ziegler. Um, I had already um, gone to an HUC weekend. I went to an RRC weekend. I'm telling you, Saul, from the beginning of thinking about being a rabbi, it was always multi and post-denominational. And so for all sorts of different reasons, I ended up choosing the UJ. Um, really, it was this sense of um, having a community in Los Angeles of friends to kind of hold me, some of those people who had been at Hebrew U and those early kind of Karl Bachi Shabbat experiences. And JTS wanted me to do this, you know, yes, why aren't I Cantor? They wanted me to do this great um, opportunity to like study music at Manhattan School of Music and do the JTS rabbinical program. It was actually Bill Lebo, Rabbi Bill Lebo, who like had this idea of combining in a non-cantorial way. But in the end of the day, I felt like the UJ was more understanding of my lack of halachic background. I did not come up as a cookie cutter Ramah. You know, I just didn't know what I didn't know. And so they sort of promised that they'd help shepherd me along the way. Um, and so that's kind of how I ended up with at Ziegler. Very cool. I love it. I love it. Well, there's so much more to unpack there, but I think you just being open to the experience of what you were feeling and where, you know, Hashem was leading you led you to where you are. So we're going to have to sort of compact the, 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 the middle to the current part of the story. So then you kind of fast forward, you ended up becoming a pulpit rabbi and talk about being a pulpit rabbi. And then you transitioned into something else. So this is totally fascinating, right? So for people that are thinking about becoming a pulpit rabbi, what did you love about it? What was challenging? Let's hear about that. That's great. Um, so I would say I worked in a congregational setting. I don't love the word pulpit rabbi. First of all, we don't even have a pulpit, a bima at a Colomet anymore. I still dip into that community and participate when we can because we live close enough. I took a break um, to make my havdalah, my separation. And now with my own kids, um, it's been lovely to sort of be back during the end of the pandemic and beyond. Um, so, um, yeah. 
so many fun stories to tell. I mean, I remember when I was applying, I, I'm sorry, when I was interviewing the way that it used to work, it's stopping now, um, was kind of what I'd call like a, a sorority rush week. So the UJ and the JTS students would meet together at GTS and any synagogue who wanted to have a rabbi would put out their list and the students got to choose who did we want to interview with. So we got that first chance to interview. And then of course they would decide who would they want to bring. And usually they'd bring approximately three candidates. Again, I've been a rabbi for 14 years and a lot has changed. And on my next podcast with you, we can talk about the future of the rabbinate. Maybe not today. But I remember there was this huge blizzard. I had to go out and buy boots in New York. I had been coming from Ziegler, you know, a Mulholland Drive, as sunny as it gets. And um, many of the places I was talking to were like east of the Mississippi. And I was just terrified. I was like, please don't leave me out here. Um, and so the, in the end, there were several California places that I was able to talk to. And it was just this sense of truly like, please bring me home. Like, don't let me languish here in the snow. Um, and thank goodness, you know, Colomet was, was a great match. I was there for seven years and really was in charge of all the educational initiatives from tops through teens, as well as parent um, education, multi-generational opportunities, um, and some um, congregational duties like uh, Minion and helping lead services and just being part of the team and all the holidays. Um, but my primary responsibility for those seven years was really um, creating a, an educational, vibrant infrastructure. In fact, we created a mission statement was uh, our role was to support strong and joyful Jewish identity. Um, and that was with Michael Kahn, who was our ed chair at the time, was a Stanford professor and wonderful. And I still really resonate with that phrase, strong and joyful Jewish identity. I think that it is part of what my lens for my rabbinate is all about what I'm trying to do. Um, but after seven years, it was time for me to take a break. Um, my husband had owned, a, still owns a small, small condo about 12 miles south. And after interviewing with a lot of different organizations, I went to the JCC gym one late night and I turned off all the screens on the treadmills around me, uh, ellipticals, and I just like ran. And then 10 minutes later, I had a vision of the curtain opening and I saw what was next, which was that it's time to take a sabbatical, move to Campbell, go to the condo, like recollect. I already had a, Hadar was almost a year and a half. He was 18 months when I finished at Colomet and um, kind of just let it all sit. But Saul, you know me, you know, I can't keep my hands, you know, know, it out of all the pots. So um, within the first couple months of being in the South Bay, I already had a ledger line of like 20 gigs and part-time things. And it was really actually really amazing. And several um, colleagues and friends like helped me get into the Jewish world of the South Bay. And uh, it culminated with being the, you know, the leader of PJ Library in the South Bay, as well as doing a lot of work supporting different synagogues and bringing Jewish yoga, all sorts of different age group work. Um, so it was kind of my laboratory in the end and things were humming along and we, you know, went through the pandemic and I did all the work I could to support community over Zoom and in different ways. I was able to build out a family center a physical space at the Alaska Outers JCC. I spent two and a half years. I created and supported a special needs parent support group, which um, quickly met over Zoom, all sorts of different things. And a year ago, a little more than a year now, um, I got a, a call asking if I knew where the PJCC was. And I said, well, yes, it's two JCCs North. Why do you ask? And the person asked if I would consider working there. And Three and a half weeks later, I was signed and our wonderful CEO, Jordan Schenker, brought me along to, to start this new chapter. So I'm 11 months in and I'm taking all of those different experiences and bringing us, you know, uh, into this idea of enhancing Jewish life within and beyond the PJCC in San Mateo County. So we're the only JCC in the county. We believe there are 37,000 Jews here. Um, 80, 85% are not synagogue affiliates. And so we are all working together to help um, steward along and open and encourage 
people to, you know, walk through a Jewish door metaphorically and, and just try try something on, um, have a safe, fun, vibrant Jewish identity experience that can help them move on their Jewish journey. So that's what I've been up to the last 11 months. Very interesting numbers. 37,000 Jews in, in uh, I guess, San Mateo County is the estimate, 85% unaffiliated. So, which leads to the next obvious question, which is, you know, now based on, you know, you being here for a little while and in your role, what is the role of a JCC? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a really exciting question. And I will also just start by saying the JCC movement is asking the same question in an organized way. So I've been honored to be part of a think tank of Jewish life professionals across the country. And we have a new vice president of Jewish engagement, Rabbi David Kessel. Um, My friend and colleague Tova Birnbaum from here in Palo Alto is really helping um, steward those conversations. Uh, But I think that, you know, the JCC movement, I went to JCC preschool. I didn't tell you that earlier, but, you know, I I grew up at the Walnut Creek JCC for preschool and here I am full circle. Right. But I think this idea of the JCC as a destination and a gateway for Jewish life, there is so much baggage uh, deserved and undeserved around synagogues and affiliation with synagogues. Um, It's unfortunate to see how much resistance there is, but the JCC can be a place and a relationship that creates some comfort and safety for people to start and then continue exploring. So um, one of my favorite parts of my work is getting to convene and um, support and hold space for all of our congregational partners um, to figure out how do we collaborate? What kind of programs do we do together? And the more I'm in relationship with my colleagues, then I'm able to um, concierge, I'm using it as a verb, um, concierge the people who come to me and help them find where they're right matches. Uh, My colleague, Rabbi Husey Valencia in the uh, Jewish Silicon Valley, South Bay, really has been encouraging, and I've I've drank the Kool-Aid on this, the term Jewish ecosystem. So we are a part of a Jewish ecosystem in San Mateo County. In a sense, I'd say Palo Alto is its own ecosystem. The South Bay is an ecosystem. You know, there's a West Coast ecosystem. There's a North American ecosystem. And so we have to help people you know, find their points of journey and create their own web on the ecosystem. You know, when I worked for Hillel, I was able to, I only had to work one Friday night a month because most of my campuses were commuter, one or two Fridays a month. And I was able to go to, you know, the reform synagogue, the conservative synagogue, the renewal space, like the modern Orthodox Penn grad student minion and kind of do my own seabooth, my own circling there. And that's really where I started to understand what's my aesthetic and what pieces from what places do I want to keep with me? So I think that is the role of the JCC is that we can start to encourage openness where there was resistance. Also, I think just building bridges, it's not just, but building bridges of understanding with our non-Jewish friends and allies. The JCC as a movement is the largest platform for non-Jewish people to interact with the Jewish community. There are a million and a half people uh, in 2023, post-pandemic, who walk through the physical doors of a JCC in this country, uh, or on this, let's say on the continent, includes Canada. And a and half a million of those people are not Jewish. So a third of the folks walking through every single week interacting with the JCC are not Jewish. So I think that, you know, I've put a lot of work into figuring out language and how to present and how to have activities both out in our community at libraries and bookstores and at lakes and all over the place and within our building and on our campus to help get to the ikar, the core of what is Jewish tradition? What is Jewish values? You know, what is Jewish identity all about? I'll tell you one quick story to end that segment. Recently, uh, we started a program called Friday, which is a monthly Shabbat in the lobby program. I hope it'll grow to more frequently. And we had uh, the first one with beautiful sort of French flower market was my image. And, you know, a DIY flower bouquet in the spirit of hidur mitzvah, which means to beautify the mitzvah. And of course, I didn't use language of mitzvah, but I knew that's where I was coming from. And so this idea that anyone walking through the Jewish, the, the JCC lobby could take different flowers and make their own bouquet to beautify their own weekend, kick off Shabbat, right? And kind of enter with beauty and joy, right? 
I know, and probably all of us listening know why starting Shabbat with beauty is important. There was a couple, 10 minutes into my four hour tabling experience, a slightly older couple who were Chinese and had a translation device. So he comes up to me and it says, he speaks into it. He says, "Um, we don't speak English. What's going on? And I put my hand on his shoulder and give him a big smile and say, oh, explain. So on the translation device, I I speak into what is Shabbos? What is a day of rest? What is, you know, a holy seventh day? Like what is community? What is, you know, starting with this aesthetic of joy and beauty? I speak into all the things. And as I see the Chinese characters translating this message that I'm sharing, on his little tiny screen, like the old style iPod, that's how big it was. This man, his smile starts, his smile grows, his smile grows. Pretty soon he's like, oh my God. And, you know, we're bumping each other on the back and it's great. And they start doing the flowers. And it's like, this is the work. This is the building bridges of understanding. By the way, the next person I interacted with was a Holocaust survivor who had been on kinder transport. Okay, so we have a big range of folks. The woman after that uh, is an Indian Jew who pretty much grew up in Israel halfway through her childhood and was here with her children. And she's a Hebrew teacher, right? So this idea of the public square, the Jewish public square, where wherever you're coming from, you can grow on your Jewish understanding and build that bridge, I think is the power of the JCC. I love it. Wow. What an amazing testimonial of the, I love the language translation device. So here's what I I suggest. I know you have a lot more to say and we're just scratching the surface. I think we need to do a part two because I like to be honored. So uh, because there's like six more questions I want to ask you about JCCs, the rabbinate, synagogues, Jewish Latin bears. So we're going to, we're going to, do something new on the Holy Sparks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to push the pause button and we're going to do a part two, but I definitely want to thank you so much for your time. This has been fascinating and definitely you're going to want to rewind and unpack all the amazing references that Rabbi Lori made and the stories. And of course, you can go to her website to find out more about her and the programs that she's doing. And of course, the PJCC, which is the Peninsula Jewish Community Center here in Foster City, where I met my wife, by the way, definitely check her out. And I'm excited for part two, because I literally thought of 10 other questions that I have to ask you, but there's no way we can do it in three minutes. So with that being said, I want to end with a quick blessing, even though we'll do a longer one. And I just want to bless you that you can find uh, your way out of the uh, Mitzrayim consciousness into Mohan Gadlut, expanded consciousness in your work, in your life, and that you have this unique history and experience of all these different Jewish worlds that you're able to weave together mentally and condense into the ability to connect with people and give them openings through all the different experiences that you've had into the Jewish public square, which is the JCC and in more Jewish experience. So I want to thank you for your time and your friendship as always. And I will say she plays a mean flute. When she told me she played flute initially, I was highly skeptical because this is not always a positive, but she is phenomenal musically and an amazing rabbi. And I want to thank you for your time. And we'll see you soon. Thanks so much, Saul. Looking forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Holy Sparks Podcast. I'm your host, Saul Kay. Please subscribe to the channel. It helps us more than you know. Drop a review. Share this with friends and family, people you think would enjoy the content. And we'll see you on the next episode.